Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Brian Kaplan, Professor of Economics at George Mason University. We talk about what I consider his three pillars of research, politics, parenting and education. Brian shares with us why democratic societies choose bad policies and why voters should elect politicians based on their past performance rather than on their promises, how Brian feels about immigration and the case for open borders, as well as the case against education. Brian also shares with us why he has decided to homeschool his twin boys and explains why parents should spend little effort to mould their kids for the future and enjoy life together. I hope you enjoyed this episode and to access all the links and resources mentioned by Brian and myself, visit economicrockstar.com forward slash Brian Kaplan. That's B-R-Y-A-N-C-A-P-L-A-N. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email, and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. So the idea that in the modern world we have kids out of altruism, in the past they did it for the business, is wrong. It's always been altruism the whole time. Democracy would work far better if voters just threw out all their theories about what policies are good and just reelected people if conditions have been good during recent years and threw them out if conditions were bad and just and it just ignored all excuses or arguments. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Professor Brian Kaplan join me today. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Brian Kaplan is Professor of Economics at George Mason University and Senior Scholar at the Mercatusk Centre. Brian is the author of The Myth of the Rational Voter, Why Democracies Choose Bad Policies, named the best political book of the year by the New York Times, as well as Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, Why Being a Great Parent is Less Work and More Fun Than You Think. He also blogs at EconLog. Brian has published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the American Economic Review, the Economic Journal, and the Journal of Law and Economics and Intelligence, and has appeared on 2020, Fox News, and C-SPAN. He is now working on a new book, the case against education. His webpage, bkaplan.com, features both his academic research and his numerous other interests, including the online Museum of Communism. Brian has a BA in economics from University of California, Berkeley, and a PhD in economics from Princeton University. And Brian, there's a lot I'd love to get through. And I see, correct me if I'm wrong, almost three pillars to your work at the moment. And it's based on possibly your books regarding parenting and having kids, politics and education. And I also noticed that you are a libertarian, if that be correct? Sure. In terms of the Austrian school of thinking? Not the Austrian school, but libertarian. Libertarian. And they they don't tend to relate to one another as such, no? Well, I mean, I have an essay called Why I Am Not an Austrian Economist, uh, trying to convince Austrian economists to stop being that. Uh, We can talk about that more if you want, but... You know, libertarianism is political philosophy, and Austrian economics is a particular approach to economics, which uh, they, you know, they tend to go together, but they certainly don't have to. They don't in me. I'd love to have a, a little exploration on your recent book on selfish reasons to have more kids. Sure. And firstly, I want to find out why would an economist write about a parenting book? Ah, so 
you know, you know, so I mean, I have very broad interests. So for, so for quite a few years, I've been reading in the field called behavioral genetics, which tries to understand why is the why is it the kids resemble their parents? So they definitely do in almost any way you can measure. But there's still a question of why is that? Is it because uh, parents mold their children through their upbringing, or is it rather because of genetics? So obviously, most people think that if your parents are tall, you're going to be tall, even if you never meet your parents, even if you're put up for adoption. Um, and that would then be genetics. Uh, on the other hand, people tend to think that if you are religious, it's because you're raised religiously. But these are all just theories. Uh, you know, in terms of figuring out actually why, you really need to go to the data. Uh, for many centuries, people were stumped by the fact it seems like the data we have doesn't really answer the question because people generally are raised by their biological parents. So that this means that nature and nurture are intertwined. But in the last 50 years... There's been a lot of work to, to, uh, to single out unusual families. So either families where kids are adopted, so you've got nurture without nature, or also to look at families with twins where you can see higher degrees of nature than usual, where you can see identical twins sharing all their genes versus fraternal twins only sharing half. Uh, now, the punchline that comes out of this work is that, especially in the long run, nature trumps nurture. Now, why would the economist then take a look at this and want to write a book on parenting? Well, it comes down to this. Uh, if you think that the uh, if you think that that that, that nurture is the way that uh, that, that uh, kid the kids from good families turn into uh, turn into uh, turn into good into good people or kids from successful families turn into successful people, then if you're thinking about having kids, uh, it basically means that if you want them to turn out into decent people, you've got to do some enormous amount of investment in order to in order, so that they'll be up to stuff. Whereas if you if you're whereas if it's really heredity, this means that. As long as you're satisfied with yourself you can, and your spouse, you can have kids, and they are likely going to turn out to be very similar to yourself, even if you don't put a lot of work into it. Uh, now, in the United States, I don't know about Ireland, but at least in the United States, uh, there is a very standard parenting style now, which you can call helicopter parenting. It's this very laborious, painful, high-sacrifice style, which I, once I had kids, I looked around at me and, and saw everywhere. And really what the science of nature and nurture tells us is that parents are wrong. You don't need to go and do all, uh, do all, make all these sacrifices in order to have your kids turn into decent people. Now, as an economist, I look at this and say, hey, two things. One, if there's a lot of investment which doesn't pay and it hurts, stop doing it. And then secondly, this is where the real economic thinking comes in. If it turns out the cost of getting the kids you want is lower than you thought in terms of pain and time and sacrifice, you should, all, you should rethink not only these, uh, the pain and time and sacrifice, you should rethink the number of kids you have. Uh, so just to make this a little bit clearer, Around the time my book came out, there was an op-ed by a mom saying, we have two kids and we're really involved in their lives and we're in, like, we go to all these soccer games and soccer practices. And then we were talking about having a third kid. And we said, oh my God, like, if we have a third kid, it's going to be three sets of soccer practices, three sets of games left to go to. And then she says, well, maybe we don't have to have the third kid play soccer. No, no, that's crazy because anyone who doesn't play soccer becomes a loser. And therefore... Uh, you know, and and uh, and and therefore the, the idea was uh, you know, like you know, the soccer is contraception. So, like the fact that you feel you have to do all this stuff in order to have a kid means that you don't really feel like having a third kid. And really, when I read this, I'm saying I'm just reversing this reasoning. I'm just saying since you don't have really have to do soccer, the people that think that you do are wrong. And what? And uh, so, first of all, if you really, assuming you and your kids don't even like soccer, stop doing it. It's no big deal. And then, secondly, at least rethink whether the number of kids that you want uh, is the same. Once you get rid of all this needless sacrifice, so that's the that's the economic connection. You know, you mentioned our behavioral uh, genetics at the beginning, and obviously we need to be 
not necessarily need to be aware of it, but it does play a role in terms of the nature versus nurture debate. Oh yeah, it's it's, it's really the most relevant evidence in the relevant relevant evidence evidence in the universe. Why is it that in a developed economy that we tend to go for the two point five children? I know that happens to be an average over the number of decades that the family size has become, but why why lower? Is it because of... Yeah. 2.5, it's a lot closer to 1.5. 1.5 now, is it? I don't know about Ireland, but um, you know, like, like, in, in most, in, like most of the EU, I'd say the average is more like 1.7 or so. We have a high birth rate. Yes, uh, so Ireland still has high birth rate. Yes, yes, not, right? not as high as um, before, I'd say. Um, yeah, so, but I think Ireland's lower than the U.S., so my mental memory is that, it, like, out of developed countries, Israel's first at about 2.5, then the U.S. at about 2.0, and then every other country less than the U.S., but I, that, I, might, have, I might not have thought about Ireland when I was going through that, but I think I did. Uh, but, 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 sorry, go on. But is it due to the fact that we're not dependent on agriculture, for example, that we need all the labor and we're being replaced by machines and hence the lack of need for a larger family size to run the family business. Right, right. So it's definitely the case that richer societies do have fewer kids. Uh, there is a big problem with the story that people in the past were just having kids to work on the farm, which is that when both economists and anthropologists have gone and checked to see whether kids were a good investment in the early period, they weren't. Because, you know, essentially, like, you know, running a farm in 1800, you could either go and have a baby and, uh, and support him uh, for many years while he, while he is a giant drain and then train him to be a farmer and on and on and on. And then after 15 years, he finally starts pulling his weight. Or you take the money and hire, and hire a farmer, uh, hire an adult farm worker that somebody else raised and trained. And, the, and the, when you go and crunch the numbers, it looks like there was really never a time when having kids made financial sense. So the idea that in the modern world we have kids out of altruism and in the past they did it for the business is wrong. It's always been altruism the whole time, primarily anyway. You know, at, at, the mar- at the margin, it makes sense to think that, that uh, you got more work out of kids in the past, but still, like, it's only a marginal difference. Yeah. And parents today, they're, we're, we're being kind of almost sucked into the whole idea that you need to spend or have your kids in a lot of activities. I'm, I'm personally guilty of that in a way and I just want him to be exposed to certain sports and have that exposure and drop it if he doesn't like it Um, but then there's also the new technologies like coding and you'd like him to have that language skill a lot of kids I'm sure are quite pressurized based on what society has uh, given us and like as you mentioned are the helicopter moms and dads oh yeah so I mean you know to be clear I am am no way against activities activities are great if uh, the kids like them and the parents like them uh, you know, what I do see is a lot of people doing activities that not only the parents not enjoy, but the kids are being dragged and being forced to do them as well. And you know, like so, there may be some narrowly selected activities that really do pay off in the future. Like coding is probably the best example if you can really get your kids into it. But most of the stuff, uh, you know, again, it's it's basically just you know, like you, either you like doing the time or you don't, and the long run payoffs are are very hard to see. I mean, you know, it's even stronger than that because. Uh, you know, like, like, just to give you an idea of the kind of evidence that's out there. So you know, the idea of adoption studies, you take kids that are adopted, you know, adopted ideally randomly by all kinds of different families and see how they turn out. Uh, and, you know, standard result in these adoption studies is kids that are adopted by the very richest families turn out to have very similar life prospects as kids adopted by the very poorest families that can legally adopt. So we're not talking you know, families that are homeless or anything. You know, homeless families can't adopt, uh, you know, at least in the United States. I assume in Ireland, uh, the homeless don't, can't adopt either. Uh, but, <laughs> um, but 
you know, the point being that you know the families that we think of as most privileged and most and and that do and that do a lot for their kids, we it's really hard to see these benefits when we go and take a look at people and their adults. So it's almost like if you want to put some economics to a laissez-faire approach to parenting. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, I know. Again, this this is uh, limit. You know, the, the research is limited to uh, you know generally within rich countries. So saying like, if you're already in a rich country like the U.S. or Ireland, then and and you're the kind of person that even asks the question, "Am I being a good parent?" The answer is yes. You're good enough. Right? Don't don't worry about it. Uh, so you know, like there are there certainly are, are kinds of parenting that are so awful that you know, like locking a kid in a closet, and never speaking to him, uh, that would do great damage. But you know, those aren't in the data, so we don't pick them up. And more importantly, you know, no one's, no, no thoughtful person is considering. Well, should I lock my kid in the closet? And you know, maybe that would be good. So you know, as long as it's within the broad range of of, of normal of normal parenting behavior, you really can feel very safe that what you're doing is not going to really help or harm your kid noticeably in adulthood. And your second pillar, I, I'm sorry if I, if, I hope you're okay with me calling them the three pillars. Sure, go ahead. Um, the second pillar, and you're working on a book, I don't know if it's um, ready for publication yet, The Case Against Education. Yes. So just transitioning from this parenting aspect, and these kids are heading into an education or going taking on an education, especially, say, a third level. What is this book about, and are we paying too much and um, being pressurized into creating graduates in certain disciplines. Right. Well, so, so it's the biggest book I'll ever write. And yeah, so it is almost ready to, so, you know, I, 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 have a, I have a draft that's almost done. I've got a contract with Princeton University Press. So you know, it should come out next year. So the heart of the book is what economists call the signaling model of education. Uh, the idea here is that a lot of the reason why education pays is not that you're actually acquiring useful job skills in school, but rather that you're jumping through hoops and showing off. Uh, now, in terms of what's good for you, selfishly speaking, the signaling model is pretty much irrelevant. The signaling model is rather about what makes sense for societal education policy. Because if school is really a, a skill factory, if your schools take the unskill, unskilled come in, skilled come out, then society is really getting a big payoff from these, from these educational investments. But if school is, as I say, primarily just about stamping people on their foreheads and saying a grade A worker, a grade B worker, then encouraging education really is really is is ultimately quite futile, because the more stickers people have on their foreheads, the more stickers you need in order to get a job, right? And the ultimate effect is what's called credential inflation, where to do one and the same job that your dad was able to get with a high school degree, you may need a college degree, right? Or a job that might have gone to high school dropouts, you now need a high school degree, or one that your bachelor's degree would have been good enough before, you now need a PhD. So the heart of the book is really about whether social uh, education is good social investment, and the main punchline is that it is not, and we have pushed education way beyond the point where it is good for society, and we are basically just making a big bonfire of resources. Now, I also do talk about uh, education as a selfish investment, and there my story is much more favorable in education, although still relatively unfavorable. Uh, so my story, uh, selfishly speaking, is that um, you know, is, is that education, especially college, is a good investment for you if you are an excellent student. Otherwise, it is not, be, uh, primarily because the failure rate of people who are not excellent students in high school uh, when they go to college is so high that you are, you know, like it's, you know, you, you're, you know, you're putting a ton of money and your odds of success are actually really low. And fortunately, people tend to, uh, tend to overestimate themselves and parents tend to overestimate their kids. But you, know, really, but you really can get a good prediction about how well people do in college based on how well they did in high school. Uh, so on top of saying that education is socially a bad investment, 
I also say that selfishly speaking, it's a bad investment for most of the people who currently go because most people were not, in college, at least in the United States, were not actually excellent students in high school. Uh, so right now, you know, maybe you know, like they're just a bit above average because most people actually go now in the United States. Can I ask you your own personal experience in terms of being an academic um, sure. and your relationship with, say, students or the knowledge that you have regarding entry into George Mason or even Princeton um, or Berkeley? Have the grades fallen for entry levels into some of these courses and are the students weaker or is it just as demanding as before? Right. So, you know, I'm not that old. <laughs> no, no, I know. Just so, <laughs> I mean, I, um, I, I've been teaching for almost 20 years now. I can't say that I've seen a noticeable fall in student quality over those 20 years. Actually, George Mason has improved since I've been here, so I think actually students are a bit better than they were originally. But what I can say is the long-run trend is definitely that standards have fallen. At the same time, the United States has high grade inflation. So as the quality of the students has gone down, the average grades have actually gone up at the, all at the same time. Uh, what this has meant is that the value of a college degree has declined a lot. So, so not compared to, to being a high school student, but rather that the like the like like what the, the the occupations that a that a bachelor's degree will get you into uh, is now it's it's quite a bit less impressive than it would have been at least thirty years ago and you know, even probably twenty years ago. Uh, so uh, you know in the United States uh, you know over the last fifty years there's been roughly about a two year increase in the average education of American adults. And when economists have tried to understand, so why did this education of the workers go up? Has it mainly been that we now do more cognitively demanding jobs, or has it just been for one of the same job you need more, you need better degrees in order to get the job? And you know, very common breakdown is something like eighty to is is like twenty percent the jobs are the jobs are more cognitively demanding, eighty percent the for one of the same job you need to have you need more education in order in order to compete. Uh, so you know, what I can say is you know I, I love teaching. I'm not I'm not like a typical professor who regards teaching as a load that I, it's a burden I have to bear. It's some horrible thing. I mean, I, I really enjoy teaching. At the same time, I do recognize that most of the students are not enjoying me, and <laughs> and you know this is true. Even though my student evaluations are way above average, you know, so if I just looked at those, it would seem like the students love me. But uh, as an economist, I think actions speak louder than words. And I can see that I'm lucky to get two-thirds attendance on any given day. So clearly, students don't actually find me all that fascinating. Uh, so one of the things I talk about in my book is, while I'm a big believer in the personal enrichment fee, uh, function of education, and it's and it's done a lot for me, but still, for most most people, don't seem don't seem to be don't seem to actually be, be feeling what I'm feeling. And you know, my view is, if they're not getting useful job skills, then Going and making them be in a classroom and be bored by stuff that doesn't interest them is really not not you know not good for their soul. Even though if they were interested, I think it you know like you know the, the stuff that's taught in school, a lot of it is just great enlightening stuff, but it doesn't rich and it doesn't rich your life. But if you're the kind of person who finds it boring, you know, my view is you just wait for the person to come around, and if they never come around, then they never do. I'm sure it's very difficult for a student to display intangible skills, say from an economics discipline, compared to some student or graduate who has tangible skills like an engineer or a computer scientist. Would there be notable differences in the signaling effect and also the, the pay differences between the two? Well, what I can say is that, well, you know, is that if you take a look at how much different majors pay, uh, whether, you know, and this is true, if you don't, if you do adjust for, if you don't adjust for the initial abilities of students or if you do, 
Uh, the punchline is that you know, electrical engineering is the highest paid major, followed by computer science, uh, usually followed by finance, and then economics is fourth out of an enormous list. And the gap in earnings between economists and engineers is actually quite small on average. Uh, so in terms of does it matter if you can display tangible skills or not, it doesn't seem like it actually matters that much. Uh, and this, and this is probably and, and pro, and pro, is probably that engineers learn a lot fewer tang, tangible skills than you might think as well. You know, a lot of time in engineering program is spent doing proofs and things like that that you would never do on a job. So you know, like like you really, it's about impressing a nerd. It's about impressing the nerd who teaches their class. Uh, so what I'd say, uh, so you know, is that economics versus engineering? Like like you know, I like unless you love engineering, I would tell almost anyone do economics instead because it's so much less work. And so when you're when you're in college, you get to have an actual enjoyable college experience, whereas the engineers are killing themselves for those years. Lab work, you know, lab work, and just the competition and everything else. And like the engineers only make a little bit more money than the economists on average. And if you go and break it down a bit further, what you see is that. For the engineers, the bottom of engineers are still are still doing quite well. So the engineers have a have a have a have a have a, have a, have a lower a smaller spread for their earnings. So like the bottom quarter of, gra- of people graduate an engineering degree still get good jobs generally, whereas like you know the bottom co- bottom quarter of economists actually are are not doing well at all. Uh, you know, you know, you know, but uh, but on the other hand, if you go and take a look at the top, you know the uh, you know the top top of you know top uh, econ students actually make more money than engineers at the top, at the top of their engineering program, probably because they're going into finance and you know and making money hand over fist. So. Have you anticipated what your children might do in the future in terms of being bored at school with certain subjects because they're quite bounded in terms of what's available? Yeah, and they may have their own interests. And I know from looking at some of your work that you had a huge interest in role-playing games and Dungeons and Dragons. And I, I'm actually reading Scott McLeod's book on oh, awesome. uh, comics at the moment. And I, I actually read an article about how important that was for you to bring you back to that role-playing games. And this is something that's ex- lacking in education because right. we're, students are quite passive and they might have this bit on the side where they are immersed and they learn a lot more than if they were, you know, because they're interested in it. So would you encourage them to say, suggest that, yeah, look, at do whatever you like to do, but obviously you have to take it on in your own spare time, just like homeschooling as such, or if you're in college or third level, to take on extra work if you have the ability to do that, because this is going to be more of a display in terms of a signaling effect to a potential employer that you have taken on extracurricular work or even sharing some interest if you happen to come across a nerd like yourself, a Dungeon and Dragons geek, if you don't mind me saying that, because I think it's self-confessed. Sure. <laughs> nerd, nerd, nerd pride, yeah. Uh, so let's just uh, start with your last comment and then work backwards. I am uh, – I, I see essentially no signaling value to role-playing games in the labor market. I've never heard of anyone who got a job because of role-playing games unless they're working in the industry, which is one of the lowest paid high IQ industries I've ever seen. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I have some friends who write for role-playing games that, you know, it's the pay is like a one to two cents per word, you know, which is like maybe like one fiftieth of what an economist would make for, for doing something like that. Uh, yeah, so what I would say is that I mean, like, there do seem to be some extracurriculars that pay, but again, normally they're highly formalized things like athletics, uh, where there's a competitive league. Um, 
So in term, terms of what employers what employers value, what I see employers valuing is like very bureaucratic, hierarchical credentials where you do the standard thing. And in my book, I have a story about this, which is that a lot of what you're signaling isn't just being smart or being hardworking or being passionate. A lot of it is just signaling that you're conformist, signaling that you are an obedient sheep, you know, a hardworking, brilliant sheep, but you, know, but you don't sit around questioning authority or, 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 or arguing with your boss. Just you know, someone who like, like fits in and, know, and accepts norms. And, you know, like, and again, if I were hiring people for business, those are the main, main, main kind of people I'm hiring. I don't want someone who's going to argue about whether what we're doing is worthwhile. I want someone who figures out how to make me a lot of money by doing what I say. Um, now, in terms of what I encourage, what I encourage though, I do. You know, I play a lot of role-playing games with my kids, and actually, my older two kids, I am homeschooling right now, uh, from middle school. Uh, again, uh, now this is so you know that you know, in my area, seventh and eighth grades. I uh, hear this is based upon a simple observation, which is that uh, no one, no, 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 no uh, neither colleges nor employers know what you did in middle school or ever ask about it. So I see this as a loophole where I can go and rescue my kids from at least two years of suffering that they would otherwise experience. Um, you know what we're doing now is um, you know in like the you know like I'm tailoring it to my kids, but you know they want to have like an intense academic curriculum that you just can't get anywhere in public school or private school. You know, so you know we like we just do you know two and a half hours of advanced mathematics every day, and I'm pre- training seventh graders for the advanced placement United States history test. And although I, and I and I have them do my my had them come you know, come and take one of my college classes just like regular students, and then do my labor economics class. I do also leave time in the day for just their own research projects to say, look, work on anything you think is interesting. You're not playing a video game, but... How did you get them so disciplined? Uh, well, my first two kids, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty disciplined, and my wife is a model employee, you know, just like an incredibly hardworking person. So based on her, I think, heredity, they, you know, they've got all this from us. So, I mean, really, I just tell them what to do, and they do it. I mean, you know, partly, you know, they're super grateful to not have to do regular school, which they just just, just uh, really hated. They did fine, but so boring and so much busy work. And so in America, there's an insane amount of music and dance and arts, whether or not you have any interest or inclination to this stuff. So, you know, they have like three separate music classes that they're all mandatory. You know, like music one, you know, like chorus, regular music, and then dance. And then, I mean, and then, you know, and just having to do all kinds of posters and things like that. So, you know, like, they really appreciate the chance to get, like, a, a, a very old school uh, yeah, academic curriculum, which, you know, is very easy for me to give them. Uh, my younger kids, um, so my younger son has a very different personality. You know, he's just doing uh, regular first grade right now. Uh, you know, he, like, you know, so my older kids, they can do homeschooling because they can do it and still let me do my job. My younger son, I just couldn't do my job if I had, if I were homeschooling him. So, you know, maybe maybe he'll mature and then he'll want to do what his brothers did. Maybe he won't. Uh, you know, like this isn't the kind of thing I would force down anyone's throat. Uh, and then my daughter, she's three. Who knows what she's going to want to do? So, you know, totally, totally uh, to, you know, total question mark there. We'll, we'll just wait and see. Fantastic. Yeah, it's, uh, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. And, you know, they're at a level in terms of mathematics that is beyond their years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, so this year we've gone through uh, you know, algebra, geometry, and we're doing algebra two. So I think we'll be able to do you know, like almost three years worth of math in one year, right? And again, learning learning it at a very high level, where like like you know, like, like learning it to mastery. I'm, I'm really into we don't we don't move on with uh, we don't move on in the book until we know, until we really know what we're doing in the current in the current section. It's not like a class where. 
if you don't do well on an exam, we just move on to the next chapter. No, like let's well, we didn't learn it the first time. Let's go back and learn it, and keep doing it until we know it. That's a, that's unbelievable. Yeah, just actually hearing from somebody who's homeschooling uh, their kids at a, such such a level, and they're actually embracing it. Yeah, you know they're 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 super happy to be homeschooled. Like and like. I mean, what the running family joke is, I mean, no no doubt you really want to go back to regular school. No, it's terrible. I don't want to be back there. It's the worst. Your third pillar, Brian, on voting and politics, and it's, again, based on your book, The Myth of the Rational Voter. Firstly, you mentioned about the paradox of democracy in it, and could you explain what this might be? See, did I call it the paradox of democracy in the book, or... See, um, perhaps, perhaps not. I have. A, I just wrote down the question here. What is the paradox of democracy, um, and that it, democracy fails precisely because it doesn't uh, do what voters want ah, to do? So, so, well, so um, you know, there, there's sort of a, there's a standard view among social scientists that what's wrong that when democracy falls short, and there's a question how how much does it fall short, but a very standard view among social scientists and probably the public is that the only thing that goes wrong with democracy is that it doesn't listen to the people. Right? And uh, in The Myth of the Rational Voter, I really defend uh, the opposite view. And I say, actually, if we go and take a look at the data, dem- uh, democracies are highly responsive to the people. The policies that exist are generally quite popular. And then I say the problem is that uh, bad policies are popular. So rather than going and complaining about you know, why is the system just doesn't do what the people ask, in my view is uh, what's wrong with the people that they would ask for such things? Uh, and uh, myth of rational voting, you know, I talk about a lot of, you know, so like, you know, you know like example that I, that I talk about a lot is protectionism. So this is a policy that economists have, have uh, you know, for centuries have thought was just a bad idea. It basically consists in trying to keep out cheap foreign goods, uh, which, you know, like when you think about it, so like, so, you know, again, suppose foreigners gave us stuff for free. Would that be bad? No, that would be awesome. Suppose the foreigners just gave us everything they made for free. Would that impoverish us? No, that would be a fantastic deal. So the next best thing to foreigners giving us stuff for free is giving them to us, selling them to us cheap, uh, which is what free trade does. Now, as and now, economists have then for centuries complained about how most countries don't have free trade. In fact, no country really has free trade. Uh, and the economist standard answer is, well, there's these lobbyists, uh, you know, lobbyists representing domestic industry, which tries to keep out the foreign products, impoverishing us all. And then the problem is the government is, is uh, under the sway of these special interests. Uh, but if you take a look at public opinion, the story is just wrong. Protectionism is very popular. Every country ever looked at, most people are most people inclined to protectionism. Most people th- uh, subscribe, don't subscribe to the view that cheap foreign products are great. Instead, there's some kind of view, it's some kind of foreign plot to impoverish our country, mess us up. And then the question is, why is it that the protectionist policies win by popular demand? Uh, so in the book, I say like there, there are. These very long-standing, deeply rooted misconceptions about inter- about about especially international trade that the public has—it's uh, really hard to talk people out of them. They kind of, these ideas come to people very naturally. The idea of trade as war is really what everyone who has not studied economics tends to think. And what studying economics does is gradually pull people away from the view that is that it seems to be natural to man. Unfortunately, say so with the. A continual election, electing of politicians who either share their, you know, their own beliefs or their biases to get reelected, even though they may not deliver. And you have a, a party who's against the current government, say, for example, and you might have a president that has the possibility of entering into a second term if, if reelected. 
and with the results that have been delivered in the say the four years of a US presidential term, they may not hit any of the promises that were made. And say, for example, Democrats for, for versus Republicans, I don't want to uh, speak specifically for the United States, but just say, for example, uh, there's always going to be misleading opinions from the uh, at the opposition. Um, but when the opposition, say, gets into power, then it reverses and you obviously have missed targets. Yeah, so, so yeah, my story is a lot of what's going on is that the public wants things that are just impossible, which puts, which puts politicians in a very tough spot because if they don't promise the impossible, people will say, well, that guy isn't going to give us what we want. I don't like him. And if they do promise the impossible, maybe they get elected, but then people like, hey, he didn't give us the impossible. We're mad. Um, so that you know, I mean, like, like you know, there there is this interesting fact that you know that governments tend to just just be very disappointing to the people that vote for them. My story is the public's expectations are just so out of whack with reality that you know, that you know, if politicians were to implement the policies the public wanted, it would be a disaster, and they get mad. So politicians are really generally sort of walking a t- walking a tightrope, saying, "Well, I want to do enough of what I promised that people don't feel like I totally lied to them." But I need to restrain myself because I actually gave in to the public on everything they want. It would just wreck the country. Uh, so you know, I think you know, you know. So you know, my general view is that people around the you know, voters around the world they're they're they're, they're populists. They just want uh, you know you know they, they want government to just, you know, do a bunch of easy fixes and then have everything work out. Uh, in fact, not only would not work out, but the results would be quite bad. And then politicians have to somehow you know like, do enough of what the public wants that people don't hate them. But uh, don't hate them for, uh, for you know for having different policies. But uh, they also have to uh, you know avo- avoid complete disaster because that makes makes voters mad too. My real view about democracy is be, is that democracy would work far better if voters just threw out all their theories about what policies are good and just reelected people if conditions have been good during recent years and threw them out if conditions were bad and just and just ignored all excuses or arguments. If people would just just judge politicians by performance, say like. Were things good the last four years? Then yes, I like you. I don't care what you did. I don't know. I don't. I'm not interested in any of that stuff. I don't need your arguments about what policies were or were not adopted. I just look around. Things are good. Relect, and that would deliver much better democracy than what we have because then politicians would just go and do policies at work without worrying about whether the policies sound good or are popular. Some of these, as you mentioned earlier, on protectionism, whether it's for goods or even say employment jobs. With countries, say the United States again, whereby you have transfer pricing, mm-hmm. you want to have that tax brought back to the United States. And also with the problems of immigration as being brought to the attention in this current election. Is there a view that you have regarding immigration and open borders? Uh, yes. So, uh, you know, I like I, I am a big champion of, of, uh, of really open borders. So, you know, like, so, like in today's political climate, people are often accused of favoring open borders if they just want the level of immigration that, that exists. Uh, I am so much more radical than that. I think that any of the, uh, that should be legal for anyone on earth to take a job anywhere. Now, again, obviously, if you're locked in jail for murder, then you should stay in jail. But you know, like for 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 any person who's not a criminal, should be able to go to any country they want and work there for any willing employer. Um, you know, you know, economically, I see this as the, you know, the argument for this is the same as the argument for free trade in general, which is that this is a way for the production of the world to increase by moving people from areas where their labor is not productive to areas where it's productive. Uh, obviously, this is an incredibly complicated issue. Uh, there are a whole lot of complaints about why things are not as simple as I've just suggested. And my general answer is, well, they're not as simple, but when you go and look at the complications, 
the complications do not really don't really alter the fundamental case. Or in many ways, they actually improve the case, improve the basic case. Um, so you know, we've only got about two uh, about two minutes left. So I don't know if I can go into them too much. But if you got you know, one follow up question, I'm happy to take that. Yeah, I'd love to ask you maybe um, just one or two questions. Mm-hmm. Who would your favorite economist be, or biggest influencer? Biggest influencer. Hmm. Let's let's see. So. Hmm. So I mean, I say, I say, I say, I mean, so let's see. Narrowing under one's a little hard, but you know, say, you know, Milton, you know, Milton Friedman, Gary Becker, but all you know, Daniel, Daniel Kahneman, and you know, I also want to say uh, Tyler Cowen, my colleague. So even though I disagree with him on almost everything, he's still had an enormous influence over over the way that I think about economics and just the way that I approach it. I mean, I met him met him at a young age, so I mean, all all of those have had a big influence on on the way that I think. Uh, and yeah, so yeah, I mean, I think think think, think those those are probably probably my best picks. And if you could get into a DeLorean and time travel, <laughs> and if you could meet either one of those or someone else, what question would you ask them? Hmm. So let's see, Gary Becker. I actually got to um, you know, meet at least once and have dinner with him, so I got to ask my questions. So not going to be him. Tyler, he's right. I just had lunch with him today, so don't need the don't need the time machine for that. Uh, Kahneman I haven't met, but I could just go to Princeton and try to talk to him. So Milton Friedman is the uh, you know, Milton Friedman is the only. You know, so I I got, I got to have him sign a book and then run off. That's the that's the extent of my contact. I think I'd probably like to just ask him. So you know, right, so you know, Milton, right? Uh, so tell me everything you know about psychology and how it should, and, and how it should change the way that we think about economics. And if he and if he were to say I don't know much about it, say Milton, you're better than this. Come on, you've got to learn this stuff. Would you have any parting advice that you'd like to share with us, perhaps on your beautiful bubble or something else? <laughs> hmm. Uh, well, I, mean, I, I, I guess we'll say that. I mean, I'm just you know, like you know, when you know, so when, when, when I was growing up, the idea that one day there could be podcasts like this where interesting people get to get together and talk and listen and just discuss ideas and share, and that it would be just a giant free for all and this incredible cornucopia of ideas that we have on the internet. I just would have said, "There's just no way. That's crazy. That'll never happen. That's a that's a that's a pipe dream. That's fantasy." And here we are. So I mean, I can't just you know, say I'm I'm just so grateful for how the world turned out. When people complain about you know like Tyler you know Tyler about the great stagnation, to me like we're living in a future far more amazing than anyone that I ever hoped for. In terms of how good it is to be alive, you know, this seems way better than living on the Jetsons or something like that. Yeah, we don't have flying cars, but we have a machine that contains all the knowledge of man at the which is and it's free at the you know like just price price of, of electricity and like so to me it's just amazing like this this intellectual and cultural bounty that we have and I'm so grateful for it so that's my closing thought is you know like what we, what what we are doing right now is just part of you know an, 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 of an incredible bounty that really has not been up not been appreciated and we just take it for granted which is sad because you know like Really, we should count our blessings, and this is a blessing of surpassing wonder. Fantastic, Brian. Brian, thank you for being so inspiring for joining me in Economic Rockstar. I had a blast, and I personally learned a lot from you. Share again with our listeners where they can find you. Uh, sure. So I blog for EconLog, and my website is just bkaplan.com, so I've got a ton of stuff up there. You can find all the links in the books mentioned here on the Economic Rockstar podcast on economicrockstar.com forward slash Brian Kaplan. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time, Brian. You are an economic rock star. Thank you. And I really appreciate it. And thanks so much for taking the time out to do this. My pleasure. Go Ireland. 
you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com, where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. (laughs) 